Hello, and I'm Bill Peschel, and this is Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, A Conversation with Katrina McPherson. She is the author of more than 30 novels that cover wide swaths of the mystery genre, such as historical, humorous, and psychological suspense. She has 15 books in her Dandy Gliver series set in Scotland during the 1920s and 1930s, and she has also written psychological thrillers reminiscent of Gillian Flynn and Leon Moriarty, and five books in the Last Ditch mystery series featuring Lexi Campbell, a Scottish therapist living the California dream, and that doesn't even begin to describe it accurately. Her books have won the Anthony Award twice, and she her books other books have been shortlisted for the Mary Higgins Clark, Left Coast Crime, McCavity, and Edgar Awards. And she has also received starred reviews from Kirkus, Library Journal, and Publishers Weekly. Her newest book will come out in December, and it's the fifth book in the Last Ditch series, and it's called Scott in a Trap. So welcome, Katrina McPherson. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here, Bill. I will take that. Gillian Flynn and Leanne Moriarty. I love both of them. I do. Um, yeah, and I apologise for that title, Scott, in a trap, because it's given friends earworms every time they see it. <laughs> I think of it as Scott in a trap. Ooh, that's how I think of it every time I think of it. But... Well, the books all have uh, different puns in the titles as well, because I'm seeing down here uh, Scott Free, Scott and Soda, Scott on the Rocks, and Scott Mist. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background before we begin? Yes, well, just don't prepare to fall on the ground with shock. I write about a Scot who moves to California and I am a Scot who moved to California. I'm not a therapist. I just thought that was the funniest thing I could think of. A Scottish person trying to help Californians become more self-actualized. I just thought it would be such a disaster. No, my, my background is um, I was an academic linguist. Um, so I taught in a university. I, I was what you would call a professor. Um, and I love language, I'm very interested in language, but I was no good at being a university professor. I was very unhappy and I had always wanted to write stories. So in a high stakes move that looked more like a breakdown, I resigned from my tenure track position and sat down. Uh, so 22 years ago, it was the start of the new millennium, it was year 2000, and typed chapter one into an empty file and thought, Ook. I did some part-time teaching. I thought I'll do some. I'll try this for five years, and then I'll 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 just realise that this is a silly pipe dream, and I'll go back and save my pension. But hey, what do you know? Sometimes things work out. So that's that's how I got into writing, and how I got into mystery fiction is it's just what it's what I love. I've always loved uh, to read it, and also I love the community. I wrote a couple of things that are that annoyingly not mystery fiction early on, because they could have been, they were so close, if I'd given them a wee nudge, they would have been, and they weren't. And the difference between the experience of being published in the crime fiction world and, and being published in the, you know, the, the open sea of uh, not crime fiction meant that everything else I wrote has been crime fiction ever since. Yes, those are two books. I'm actually going to look them up because it sounds fascinating. Growing Up Again and Straight Up, one of which is time travel humor. Yeah. And, and the second one is Hollywood satire, it seems. Yeah, there's, there's sort of what the, the first one, I always thought of it. My working title was Save Elvis. I still think that's a much better title. 
because the first job of any time traveller, go back, save Elvis, and then see what else you're going to do. Not Gandhi. So that gives you my level, Elvis. Um, and it was based on a bit of my linguistics PhD. I had some time travel in it. Well, not time travel, but counterfactual reality mm. and uh, trying to um, make, t trying to explain why it is we can still understand and decide whether we believe statements about enormously counterfactual non-existent worlds so it sort of fell out of that and then the the um uh, straight up uh is about a liar and it was i had never been it's set partly in cornwall partly in new york and partly in california and i had never been to california when i wrote it oh, such hubris i'd never i'd never been west of denver and so when the book came out, I'd say to people, guess which of these three places I'd never been to. And they quite often guessed wrong. And I thought, well, that's great. And then I thought, hang on, that means I've completely failed to capture somewhere I've actually been. Like they think I've never been to New York or never been to Cornwall. So I would never do that now. But I was young and I didn't know anything. So I did it then. But I could see why people would do that because they have their own idea about what Hollywood is like. So if you're relying on your mm. impressions, then chances are they'll match up very nicely. Mm. It it may not be as in-depth of a story, but um, I, I kind of liken it to my impression of, of Britain. I am kind of an Anglophile. So it's a mix of Monty Python and <laughs> Battle of Hastings and uh, Ian Rankin novels um, set near Edinburgh. And it's it's going to be a real mix in my head because it's yeah. just going to be a collection of all these, plus the the three days that I spent in London when I was a teenager. So right. it's all those impressions. Uh, so when you first started, you, I think you, was it your first book, was it the uh, first in the Dandy Gliver series? Gilver? Yeah. After yeah, the Gilver, Artist Ball. yes, yes. How did you decide to start there? I'll, get, well, I'll give you a, a way to remember with how, to, how to pronounce her name, Bill, because she's Gilver, uh, a gilly, if you know about Scottish country estates, a gilly or a gill is a, a servant, usually out on the land, and ver is Latin for truth, so she is a dandy servant of truth. Ta-da! It's, oh. not, it's not clever, but it does help you remember <laughs> what her name is. Um, yeah, how did I... Well, I do remember clearly why I started there, because there was another book first, the, the inevitable getting academic writing out of my system book, which was atrocious and was rejected a lot. And so I put it in a drawer. And remember, I had I had resigned from my job at this point. So I was feeling a bit, a bit shame faced. And I wrote something just to amuse myself as a palate cleanser. Um, I thought I love Niall Marsh, Marjorie Allingham, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, Agatha Christie, Curtsy all those golden age writers. So I'm going to write one of them just for fun. And it, it, it'll it just make, it'll boost my confidence and then I'll try to write another book to, to have published. Um, and so that was the first in this now 15 book long series and I'm writing book 16 as we speak. That's good. That's also very interesting because you've got a wide variety of books here and two series that you're continuing to add to. Uh, the thing that impressed me about the Dandy Gliver series, at, at least as far as the Armistice Ball is concerned, how well she does not conform to expectations. She's 
I, I understand correctly, and I'm sorry, I'm still like halfway into the first book, so uh, oh, well the done. details. Thank you. I always say, please read it gently, because it was my first effort, and it's overwritten, because I think that's the law. Your first book has to be a little bit overwritten. <laughs> anyway, thank you for persevering. Yeah, but her, her, uh, my expectations of what her character was going to do in any situation is always turned over. It's never going to be what I expect it to be. She has oh. a very acerbic tone at times. Uh, she's... Uh, like I say, it's just it's just not what I was expecting out of a historical out of a historical mystery. Hmm. Um, That's now, interesting. Yeah, book? I mean, the, I think some female characters, and I would say women writers as well, sometimes get the um, sharp end of the stick when it comes to likability. You know, I I can't imagine. I mean, it might happen. It might happen a lot, but I can't imagine someone saying to Michael Connolly, "Is Harry Bosch likable?" You know, it just, it just would never happen. So, I'm really glad that she comes over as brisk and a little bit bossy and hugely entitled, because she's at. She, well, she starts out anyway. In 1922, she's an aristocratic lady. Um, she's very. Uh, privileged and she's very safe and she's she's never really had to face anything very much and that does crumble as the series goes on partly because she she goes into different situations that she goes into um you know, like miners cottages and into the heart of a herring fishing industry and things like that and also that society starts to change so 1926 was a big year there was the general strike in britain where we know it lasted for nine days, but they thought it was going to be like the Russian Revolution. They thought the jig's up, or it's over for us and our kind. Um, so that so that changes. She's not quite so complacent, but she's just as acerbic. She's just as uh, brisk as the books go on. And the relationship between her and her fellow detective, Alec Osborne, becomes more uh, competitive and narky and... Um, it, like siblings, like with a lot of rivalry and trying to get to the answer first, and but also with some kindness there as well. So do each of the books center around a particular event? Yes, the, the, I choose, for those books, I choose the setting <laughs> first. Uh, so, I mean, the event is a crime, usually a murder, almost always a murder. Uh, it, it tends to be the setting, but the setting not just in terms of geography, but in a, an institutional setting. So there's one in a convent. In fact, this was when I really realised what a fantastic job this was. It was book five, I think. Yes, I'd just written one. I'd written one set in a circus and no one had stopped me. So that was fun. And I thought, wow, I can, I can really do anything. So I'm going to send her over undercover in a grand house during the general strike, so she gets the servant's view of this. And then I thought, well, you know, where next? She went to rival department stores and then to a kind of dotty hospital, a hydropathic um, treatment hospital where they, they use electricity and water together <laughs> um, to cure or to pretend to cure kind of ills. So and I just started sending her wherever I wanted her to go. And usually all, all over Scotland, not at all, so I can go and stay there and deduct it from my taxes. Oh, no, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time you get to book 15, The Mirror Dance, what year is that set in? That is 1938. 1938. So she, you're actually, she's aging. 
and and of course changing as she's being exposed to all these and that's also something i find it's it's it reminds me of a series of novels by lever Raphael, who was an academic university of michigan and he his teacher character becomes drawn into various murders and what i found really fascinating about him and they're really great books actually is how he is affected by them and he actually becomes something of a private detective by book five or six or seven because he's changed you're exposed to bodies, you're exposed to murder, you're exposed to the evil, and you can't, you shouldn't be this cheerful person at book eight that you are in book one. I don't, detectives aren't, police detectives aren't. Exactly. I know that. I mean, Dandy and Alec do become Gilver and Osborne detectives. They've got business cards and everything. Ah. They, you know, they're up and running. And for a few books, she keeps it quiet. She keeps it secret from her husband because it would be so unseemly. It's all right if they're having an affair, that would be normal. But if they're engaged in trade, oh my dear. So, um, but not anymore. But they, I think it's more the modern, is it, funnily enough, it's in the comedies. It's in the comedies that are set in California with this displaced Scot, this fish out of water Scot, that I try to make sure that she's suitably um, not traumatised in that she's got PTSD because that would be uh, she would then have to change her life I mean PTSD is one of those terms like you know depression that's bandied around a little bit too blithely I think so she and, and not everyone gets PTSD from being exposed to horrific events but she is you know shocked and she's upset and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't fight the body and then just bounce back. She is affected by it, but it helps that she's a professional therapist. So she knows how to how to deal with what she's experiencing. But yes, exactly. I'm so glad, I'm so glad you brought that up because people people don't. Mm-hmm. You think you look at these um, professional police, for instance, uh, who've dealt with a murder. Like, well, Vera or, you know, Inspector Morse, Inspector Frost, Inspector Lewis, all the inspectors, they would be gibbering wrecks. They would have been invalided out of the force long before we get to the series or season that we're on. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's one of the bits of the suspension of disbelief that I think gets ignored yeah. in this confection that we that we write about. Well, but we also see is that they have a different sense of humour and it's the type of humor that civilians would definitely not understand, much like uh, people in the military. Yeah. You know, their yeah. sense of humor about various things happening would, uh, it was World War I veterans had talked about, or that became obvious about World War I veterans, or any war veterans for it really, is that they can't talk about what they experienced exactly. except to other veterans, because mm. they understand why you find something funny on the battlefield or something horrifying but also hilarious on the battlefield because that's the only way you can deal with the memories and the trauma from that now you uh, uh we can, let's go on ahead and, and we can talk about lexi because as i understand it this was something that came up between your editor and yourself a, a new series yes. you mentioned this it was um yeah we were having breakfast at a, a conference in i think phoenix maybe but in convention land somewhere i think it was phoenix maybe and she said we'd like another series from you not a different series an additional series and uh, we'd like it to be there are always laughs in my books all of them even the the very dark ones there are always there's always some humor but she said we want it to be a comedy Mm -hmm. 
What she said is we want you, like you are on a panel, like you are on a stage, but as a mystery novel. And it's got to be funny, which is it was quite intimidating because I thought if I if you set out your stall and you say this is a comedy and people don't laugh, that's much more of a problem than if people don't laugh for the few laughs there are, you know, in a dark psychological thriller set in a psychiatric hospital, for instance. Um, and it, it, she wanted it to be set in America. And I thought, well, I can't do that. I'd lived here for six years by then. But I thought, well, I could write I could write a Scottish voice set in America. I'll do that. And then the idea struck me that she would be a therapist. Um, and then the idea struck me that she would be a broke therapist, newly divorced, really on her uppers. And so she'd live in a motel because she wouldn't be able to afford to live anywhere else. And this was before that wonderful film, uh, The Florida Project. I don't know if you've seen The Florida Project that's no, set in a, a motel, very rundown motel in um, near Disneyland. It's a wonderful movie, but it was before that. And it was before Schitt's Creek. I just mm -hmm. want to say that. I adore Schitt's Creek. <laughs> but what I thought was, she so she'll live in a motel and so everybody else will be transient. So there'll be a new cast of characters in every book and someone gets killed and then she can solve it and, and you know, no harm, no foul. And then, because I've got no discipline whatsoever, I fell in love with the characters I wrote in the first book. So there's a single parent, and Della, and her little boy, Diego, who were staying in one of the downstairs. So it's an old-fashioned horseshoe-style motel with a walkway. And it's not fancy, it's got a laundromat on one of the arms of the horseshoe. And there was a couple, and I think they were just driving past, Kathy and uh, Nolene, they were just driving past. And then there's a pair of doctors, uh, Todd and Roger, who are staying in the motel while their house is being tented for bugs because one of them has got kleptoparasitosis, which is a, a fear of imaginary bugs in the environment. That means a horrible psychiatric uh, condition that he suffers from. And I thought, well, these people will be there for one book. And then while I was writing it, I thought, no, I don't want them to be here for one book. And I certainly don't want any of these people to die. So I made Kathy and Nolene own the motel in the laundromat. Uh, Todd and Roger live in the motel because it's safe from bugs, because Kathy gets uh, insecticide from her cousin in Costa Rica that's completely illegal in California. In fact, in book one, I say it's so good even illegal in Nevada. So it's safe and he can stay there. And uh, Della, I thought, well, sadly, um, Della, probably you don't really need to work very hard to make it that she lives in a motel permanently. She's not documented and she's a single parent. She's got this little boy. She might well live in this motel permanently. So they're all still, they're all still there. Book five, they're all still there. Yes, and by the end of the first book, Lexi gets a houseboat. Yes. <laughs> so she's living on a houseboat behind the hotel. If I, yes, if I in the last that ditch. It's the last ditch slough mm. that gives the last ditch motel its name, which is not a great name for a, for a motel. But she lives on, and for anyone who's in the Bay Area of San Francisco, it is the houseboat that's on the pier with all the um, historic historical boats that you can visit. So it's got tall ships and various things. And there's a wee houseboat in dry dock. And that is Lexi's, that's Lexi's boat. Just because I visited it and went, oh, it's like being in a doll's house. It's so cute. And also one of the things I missed when I moved here was old stuff. 
like old scruffy stuff everything's so bright and new and um kind of when we first came here my husband's a, the reason i'm here is my husband's a professor at uc davis and um, so the same reason everyone's in davis who you know doesn't belong there and we drove into town and looked around and went well i won't say the word that we said it's sunnydale it was just like it just looked like buffy the vampire slayer Mm. Everything was the colour of ice cream and all these golden, perfect, naked students. 35,000 of them. Um, so I really missed the old stuff and that's why Lexi lives on a houseboat. I am not disciplined at all. It, I can't believe that I get to do this and they, they pay me. It's great. It's funny that you say you're not disciplined, and yet here you are with with thirty books um, <laughs> coming out over the over the less than twenty years. So, um, well, I'm disciplined I... in that I do like write. I, 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 I the structure is disciplined. I write two thousand words every day, five days a week until it's done. Um, but what happens? when that door's closed, you know, that, that Hemingway thing of write drunk and edit sober. I don't write drunk, but I don't need to write drunk because I just write chaotic nonsense anyway. And I don't care. Nobody's ever going to see it. You can't embarrass yourself. I don't think you can embarrass yourself. So, so I've got, I'm disciplined in the, when I do it, but what I do, I just, it's but just fun. I think that's part of the writer armor that you have to develop or that some, some people have no problem at all putting themselves out. There's, uh, they're, they're called rhino hides. <laughs> and then there's some like I, myself where I've published 30 books through my press, but very little of it is actually mine. I annotate novels and I publish my wife's work as well. So, and that's something I have to deal with all the time is, be, yeah. is being able to put out something that is not me but I feel like it is because it's reflective of my sensibility and intelligence. This only works. It's only the first draft when I'm like that. I don't uh, show anyone my first draft, but by the time I'm finished, say four or five drafts, by the time I'm finished with the book and I know when I'm finished with the book, cause I hate it every page and I know it off by heart. And I, if I, if I, if someone was to read me a sentence, I'd be able to just keep going and I'd do it in this voice. Cause I just hate it. And I think that's that when when my response to any potential problem is, oh, just cut it, just cut the paragraph, cut the whole page. You know, I know that's time to give it away. And once I've once I've given it away, I, I'm not I don't find it that difficult to take editorial content. And I don't really care about I mean, I care, but I don't get wounded by um, trade reviews and I don't read reader reviews on Amazon because they're not for me. That that may I think why anyone who goes to their Amazon page and reads the reader reviews of their own book, then why would you do that? Yeah. That's because you're overhearing something that you're never meant to I mean I read Amazon reviews of books I'm thinking about buying, but not of my own books. So Yeah, that's very wise. That is <laughs> absolutely very wise. Well it, it's it's a shame in a way to to talk about uh, about your prose this way because what i i've been reading uh strangers at the gate as well that's what i've been reading and what i what i found there's this wonderful line that um i just i just it just stopped me dead and it's very short because it was four o'clock and black as hate outside Oh, I don't even remember writing that. Just yeah. using the word hate in that context. And it, it fit very well with the sensitivity I thought of 
because it reminded me and only in terms of the background of where it takes place in the, yes. in the woods in um but it can be it can be dark at four o'clock in december sort of late november through to mid-january it is dark at four o'clock in scotland because it's so far north yeah. but it, it reminded me of twin peaks Oh, thank you. Just the way the landscape looks and the music. As I'm reading through this, I can hear the soundtrack (laughs) in my, and it doesn't have all the other odds. Well, it does have odd stuff, but not in the same way as David. No, not in the same way. It's not Lynchian. No, no dancing dwarves and uh, uh, (laughs) dream sequences or anything like that. But it was very intensely, very intensely moody. And like I said, that sentence just stopped, stopped me cold. Um, because it was just such a perfect distillation of that moment in so few words. Thank you. Yeah, that book that, that book was one where my lack of discipline meant that I killed the person that I killed in that book was someone I absolutely loved, but it just happened. That's who dies. And I can remember writing that and thinking, oh, no, I would have loved to spend the rest of this novel <laughs> writing that character. And there that person is, dead in a pool of blood on the floor. Ocht. But what are you going to do? That's true. But that's how you write. You're yeah. more of a pantser yeah. than a plotter. <laughs> you really Huge look- pantser. Oh, my God, Bill. Huge pantser. I am at 66,000 words of the first draft of Dandy Gilbert number 16. And I think the first draft will come out about 80 haven't a clue who done it not mm. a clue and it is beginning to bug me because <laughs> i probably need to find out by the end of next week and then is that when you go back in and kind of put in anything to to reinforce that or does the plot naturally dictate who does it uh usually the plot dictates who does it so i'll work it out and then i'll i'll leave it and i'm going to edit this one starting in march so i'll get to the end of the first draft and I'll print it out and I'll leave it aside and I'll go back to it in March and fix mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. So let's see, that's that's your next project is the, the next Dandy Gilver novel and you have a new one. Uh, can you tell us about the new um, uh, Last Ditch coming out in December? It's, oh, it's yes, going to be it's published coming in out. December. It's coming out at the perfect time. It start, So for some reason, the first book started on the 4th of July and then the second book started organically uh, at Halloween. And then I thought, oh, I'm just going to start every one of them on a on a holiday. Uh, so we've had Valentine's Day, and um, oh, and then the the lockdown comedy. So it, was, it seemed like a good time to have a closed circle mystery when there it's the start of the pandemic and they all locked down together in April 2020. So that was like an anti-holiday. That was the day that the California governor closed Disneyland. The day least like a holiday ever. And this one starts on Thanksgiving and runs for what I say, it's a week of murder and leftovers. So the book actually comes out on the day when the characters in the book finish the last pie. (laughs) I think it's a pecan pie because it's got the most sugar in it and no cream and it doesn't go off. Um, So, yes, it starts it starts at Thanksgiving and. so it's lots of food, lots and lots of food. And I've revisited my astonishment at the Thanksgiving menu from the early years that I lived here. I looked at this table and thought, I can't believe what's on this table. I just, this is just incredible what, what? and delicious. Yeah. Um, and it, um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm doing a, I'm back to doing a live uh, face-to-face 
proper uh, launch party and that this tickles me no end because it, the launch party is going to be in the real version of the bookshop that's in the book because these books are set in a very lightly fictionalized version of the town where I live and there's a scene in the bookstore so I'm going to be in the bookstore reading the scene in the bookstore trying to convince the people who work in the bookstore that the um, obnoxious bookseller in the book is not based on anyone and she's really not. The The place is absolutely Davis, California. In fact, on my website, there's a little quiz uh, about the Easter eggs. Like, can you can you find all the little hidden things in the book? But the, none of the people are real. But yeah, that's what it's about. Someone comes and gets um, murdered in the motel and it is someone from Lexi's past. And she's the only person who knows this dead guy. And she's the only person with a motive. And she's also got opportunity uh, and means so it's caught in a trap mm -hmm. there's the title well i see we're running out of time so i'm gonna have to let you go but i want to say it was a real pleasure talking with you i'd love to have another another interview with you so we could go a little bit more into the psychological thrillers as well because there's just a lot you know, there's a lot there to unpack so yeah, that, oh yes yeah, i mean say what you like about me i can talk right thank you <laughs> <laughs> and where could people find out more about you Oh, yes, very easy. I'm at www.katrinamcpherson.com. I am on Facebook as Katrina McPherson and I'm on Twitter as Katrina McP because my name's too long and I'm not, I still haven't got round to Instagram, mm. unfortunately, but I'm, I'm in those three places. Yeah. And of course, Katrina's books are available at the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop as well. Thank so you. I want to thank you very much for appearing. And I hope for the people at home that the, your next, your favorite book is the next book you read. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Bye.